Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Way Back When History Show. Today, we're really pleased to have New York Times bestselling author, and historian Craig Nelson join us. He's really well known for his World War II books, and he's written all kinds of other books and short stories as well. Um, but he's joining us today to give us an overview of his third book covering World War II. It is called V for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II. It came out uh, May 23rd through Scribner, so you can go get it now. And you can go to his website, craignelson.us. So welcome to the show, Craig. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I couldn't be better. It's great to have you here. And I'm excited to talk about your book because of Franklin Roosevelt, because I think it's a sign that people may not really always see about what he stood up for. But also, um, Nancy and I travel the country full time, uh, documenting parks and public lands, but also communities. And we've seen a lot of the industrial history of this country, which was kind of a new thing for us, having come from more of the Western coast. And then, of course, we have the Pacific Theater over there, right? So that was like whenever you travel up the coastline of California and up north, you start to really see what happened and obviously Hawaii. But the industrial side of things um, was fascinating to me because what I'm getting from what you've written about is we kind of like World War II, America, because of Franklin Roosevelt, kind of held hands, government and business held hands together to make things work with the military. Am, am I right in that? Yes. Uh, one of the new things that historians are thinking now in World War II is that the secret weapon to winning that war was the arsenal of democracy, which was the union of, of, of American, the power of American manufacturing with the management skills of the federal government. I know we don't think much of those management skills now, but they right. in fact, <laughs> were sort of brilliant at that time. They built the Lincoln Tunnel. They built the Golden Gate Bridge. They built many spectacular things, the Hoover Dam. Uh, uh, that really redid America because without all of those things, all of that infrastructure, we wouldn't have been a strong enough country to be able to defeat Hitler and all that happened in the New Deal. And then the sort of foundation of what had happened in the New Deal of trying to integrate the American economy to sort of boost it and fix it with the union of the government and the businessmen held over through World War II. And it was the secret to how we were able to outproduce everyone and supply both the Soviet Union and the Britain and Great Britain and win that war. But, you know, it kind of makes me think about how we always talk about how wars make money. And I think about like the Great Depression. And right after that, here comes, you know, World War II, which was still kind of, it's, it's attached to World War One, no matter how we look at it, right? But we kind of forget World War One all the time, I think. But I think it's, <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, you know, we talk yeah. about Vietnam, but forget about the Korean War, you know? Yeah. So so one of the things that's sort of amazing to see in this story is how the American people come together when they finally realize how this has to happen. And it starts, the story starts in probably the worst moment in American history, which is 1933, where 25% uh, of the nation is unemployed and starving. People are really start. they're really looking for food on the garbage dumps to try and eat something. Right. And our military has been stripped to the bare bones. It's, we're 18th in size in the world between 
Portugal and Bulgaria. So, so join the army bigger than Bulgaria, you know, and, 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 and you can see this sort of incredible fear and doom that's gripping the nation just by looking at movies and, and listening to recordings from the radio. And you see, we're really at our lowest ebb at this point. And Roosevelt comes in, he, he sweeps away the cobwebs. He tries hundreds of different things to fix the country. And one of them is when he sees Britain and France giving over pieces of Czechoslovakia to appease Hitler and keep him from war, he creates a new thing where he boosts the American airline manufacturing. So that now we're going to make airplanes both to defend ourselves and to sell to Britain and France. And that becomes the arsenal of democracy. See, now that's interesting, because as I was saying, we we're also covering uh, the airfields in England. And I was like, how did that start off? You know, but I, I know World War One, we it wasn't I think it was students from Yale are the ones who said, hey, we need to go out there and do something and started the Air Force, which I think is pretty. I mean, who thinks of like, hey, let's go up in the sky and get them that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, one of the things that was amazing in learning this history is seeing all the parallels between then and now. So yeah. in the 1930s, uh, what we think of as Silicon Valley was then Detroit, which was an industrial right. powerhouse producing more motor vehicles than anybody else in the world through an assembly line, revolutionary assembly line method. And almost point for point, the Ford Motor Company is just like Apple is today. And Sears Roebuck is just like Amazon is today. And another analogy was that when Roosevelt first started talking about how we had to do something about Hitler, a group of college students at Yale said, hell no, we won't go. And it was just like Vietnam. And they became what was then called America first, fighting any American involvement in the wars in Europe. But they were offered free rent in Chicago and were taken over by right-wing uh, uh, industrialists in Chicago. So the sort of uh, uh, Yale college people ended up being replaced by anti-FDR people. And that started the rise, political rise of Charles Lindbergh and the huge great debate that happened. Oh my God, the Lindbergh thing is crazy. This is insane. Cause we all look, you know, like look what he did, you know, but it, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because of the, the negative and positive. And we talk about that even right now in our history about taking statues down from civil war, what some wanted as leaders. And now we know these were not really the good guys. But then when you look at some of their battle strategies, you're like, these guys were pretty badass, but the same thing, like, you know, you look at Churchill, Lindbergh, I mean, it's, it's kind of this weird um, Jekyll and Hyde thing. And I kind of look at the, the person that FDR was, because you also talk about him, you know, he's like, he's the sweetest guy, yet at the same time, don't mess with him. We know Eleanor Roosevelt, you don't want to mess with either, but FDR, it seemed like <laughs> he was really innovative. Like he didn't give up on things ever. It doesn't seem like. He was a real amazing character in one way in that he would try experiments in every way he knew how. And he said, I would be happy if 60% works. And what politician would say that now? You know, I mean, it's yeah. inconceivable. But he, he would have committees and he would hire this person and he would hire that person and he'd bring in people from Sears and Ford and, and GM to work for the government and try and fix things and make everything happen. And he would have outreach to businessmen and he would, and he would be coordinating the military, uh, the federal government and American business leaders. And that's how World War II was won. Well, when you think about 
all of these business leaders to getting together. And then you think of Henry Ford, obviously transportation, right? Chrysler, all of those people, that's all transportation. But then when you think about all of this networking and what has happened in regards to our transportation system as a whole, not just the individual cars, but the transportation system as a whole, including airplanes, what has come out of World War II, including even Eisenhower putting in, hey, let's we're going to do the, the highway system. I think it's pretty remarkable. But FDR, I think, personally would think that getting people together was a really strong point, which I think we would like to see now. <laughs> yes, and, and I'm hoping and I'm hoping that the different uh, legislation that was recently passed to boost infrastructure repair and yeah. to bring back chip manufacturing and other offshore things. I really hope that we're going to see this happening again, because when you see when you visit the, the Rust Belt and see no one really doing anything about this, it's terrible. And maybe these initiatives will will help bring that back, because frankly, you know, do we want all of our phones made in China? Do we want no. all of our military equipment made overseas? No, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, but it's weird how our military gear gets sold to the enemy later. Like they get sold and then next thing you know, you're fighting your own planes, like our planes with our old planes. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing how that happens. But it's true. Like I said, we travel the country full time. I can tell you the highways are in major works right now. All I know is you can be in a traffic jam anywhere, but... You know, in like Detroit, though, it is a national heritage area now as, as, a, as a city and its outlying areas because of all of its industrialism. And, you know, places like Erie, Pennsylvania, we've been to and you see that it, it, it is the transportation that made it work, made all of these products get out there. And I just I think it's an organization thing, like understanding how to get things from A to B and a war will teach you that really quickly because you, you need yeah, to get the planes to Norfolk, England. You need to, so that they can bounce. I call it the trampoline city, so that you can bounce over <laughs> to France. You know what I mean? So I think that's kind of yeah. a thing to learn from um, in regards to wars is how do you do it effectively, quickly, and with good communication? Well, one of the mind-blowing things that happened in working on this book was an analyst told me, you know, on the battlefield, logistics eat strategy for lunch. Logistics Ooh. meaning how to move all of your supplies and all of your men and all of your food and all the things you need into the right place at the right time. And, and this was a, such an eye-opening thing to hear because every military history is about this general and that admiral did yeah. that and not we need this many trucks in Lausanne and we need this many trucks in Dieppe and we need <laughs> right. Yeah. So so that was really eye-opening to see that. And so I have a whole chapter called, have you considered a career in supply chain management to, to uh, <laughs> have a fun thing about that? <laughs> hey, Jack White, the musician did his album in the supply and demand tour. So, I mean, well, he's in right. Detroit, so he gets it. Yeah. But, but you know, going going to Franklin Roosevelt and World War II, I mean, we talk about the greatest generation, right? And and they're leaving us. And so it, it really was a poignant part of our history. But what led you to not only cover World War II history, because this is your third book on it, but then really focus also with Franklin Roosevelt, FDR. Well, if you look at World War II history, you see that everyone has covered, uh, first, there's a huge library on Winston Churchill. There's a huge library on Montgomery. There's a huge library on, on uh, Marshall. 
there's a huge library on all these World War II leaders, but FDR died in 45. So mm. we're missing a lot from him. He didn't have a chance to write his own book. And, uh, and when I realized mm. that the secret weapon in winning World War II was the arsenal of democracy, which FDR meant the American people, not just the machines. So when, when I realized that this is what people thought was the new way that war was won, I realized FDR was the person who made all that happen. So yeah. to, in order to understand World War II, you had to understand FDR, and you had to understand that FDR was a very different guy than we normally think of. He was very complicated. Also, Eleanor always carried a gun in her purse. So no. that was surprising. <laughs> so now what happens if Marilyn Monroe, that you also write about, you know, Rosie oh, the Riveter, what happens if she meets Eleanor Roosevelt? And they, maybe they did, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, oh, I'll, I'll, you know. <laughs> but, one of the things I really enjoyed doing this book was that if you look at it in a certain way, if if your mother stayed home and worked in a factory, she was as much a war hero as your father serving overseas. So the greatest generation wasn't just combat. It was the people making all these planes and trucks and uniforms and food packs and everything else that you needed to win the war with. And it would look at America really transforms itself. And you hear people who, suddenly are having a job and they're suddenly having a big salary and they can suddenly buy things. And it's just an incredible thing to see happening. And of course, it's in the middle of a war, so terrible things are also happening. But you look at how this is transforming the nation. And that's why I called it another kind of a revolution. Well, yeah, because it's interesting because at one point there were rations and everything too, and everybody was saving everything. Like my great grandmother, uh, my mom always talks about her. Nancy always talks about Nana saving every button, tin foil, ribbon. She had boxes of stuff. You know, when she passed away, they found all kinds of things hidden in her closets that she's like, no, right. this could happen again. And then, you know, when COVID hit, we're all going, Nana was right. <laughs> You know, you better yes. stock up on that pasta. So, um, yeah. so we did have that rationing. So there was a, a there was a, a transition there in the economy. Yes, right. But a lot of but considering what people had gone through during the depression, the rationing for war wasn't so bad. And in fact, yeah. uh, 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 the, there was something called Mr. Black, the black market, where you could get around all the regulations. And that was one quarter of the American economy. So people were living pretty well. <laughs> we learned through prohibition what to do, right? Is that what it was? Yes, exactly. there we go. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so That's a good one. The, the title of your book, V is for Victory. And, and it, as soon as I saw the title, I just went to USC. I, I just, I, I know you know about USC. So this, uh, and I was like, okay, what, are we going to go see a football game now? I'm like, but, but V is for Victory, it's, it kind of, it's, there's that old saying, and I think you even touched on that in your book, you know, when you see a good fight, get in it. And I kind of feel that's what FDR did. He got everybody like riled up to do something. So he had a, like a, like he made America a community in a way yeah, through all of this. That's absolutely. This is a book really about how Americans put aside their differences and they were at each other's throats. They were, they would have political rallies that would turn into brawls in the street. So it, oh, sounds it's even familiar. More, yeah, yeah. But, but we aren't quite having brawls in the streets so often. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it was very similar to what's going on now in a certain way. And it's a, they had this horrible threat and they all came together once they realized and, and Franklin Roosevelt was basically trying to show them how this ha was happening. 
happening. Once they realized this was happening, the whole nation came together and completely transformed itself. And it's an incredible uplifting story in a certain way when you get to the end, because in the end, we defeat Hitler, we defeat the Great Depression, we have this economic boom times, we have the United Nations keeping things at peace. It's sort of an incredible story. It is, and I think uh, we should read it. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Everyone read it because because I think it opens our eyes a little bit. And business then was a little bit differently, and now it's true. Like you were saying in the beginning, it's like now it's like we want as big of a distance from the government and the military and everything from our business. Not necessarily the business and the military, but the government itself. Uh, we don't want them touching our business, you know. Um, yes. But I think if it's for the common good, we should kind of change how we do things because right. it can be when you do things the right for the common good, normally things are more profitable in the end. Absolutely. The, 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 there's always people talking about how Franklin Roosevelt was anti-business, but actually the Roosevelt people were as so uh, in love with American businessmen, they doubled American profits over the course of the war. So uh, uh, it, it, it was an incredible thing to see how uh, Ford and GM and all of the sort of heartland of America completely boomed in the face of World War II. And, and it would be nice to have something like that happen again, maybe without Hitler. Oh yeah, and and you know maybe not war itself. We don't need that, you know. Yes. But that but yes. that's that's it. Fascinating because I always heard that term as, you know, wars make money. And I was like, what do you mean? People are dying, and people don't have all the things they normally need, you know. So I get it now. So thank you for that. So you've you've answered a lot of my <laughs> questions. But um, if I don't bring, I want to bring up Winston Churchill because. Um, I think that's the other side of these Jekyll and Hyde's like Winston Churchill was not necessarily popular. And then all of a sudden he has become like, you know, he's Sir Winston Churchill. You know, he's become very, we have Winston Churchill Day every year. I mean, it's kind of this thing, but he wasn't popular. So when we look at political figures and people like in the news and you're like, oh, I don't like him. I mean, are we ever going to, in our own lifetimes, figure out, oh, maybe they did some good stuff? And, you know, it, I think that's an interesting thing about your book is people are not always everything they portray, and no one's all good, no one's all bad. You know what I mean? Of course. What happens, I think, is that uh, when someone dies, and in our rearview mirror, we lose sight of their complications that all human beings are complicated. We all have fears and worries. We all have good parts and bad. So in our rear view mirror, however, it starts to fade. So people stop remembering what Winston Churchill was like in real life and how difficult and crazy he could be. And part of yeah. the job of historians is to bring back people in full force of their whole personality. My own favorite Winston Churchill story was told by his uh, grandson, Nicholas Soames, who uh, went in to see Churchill when he was four years old. And he walks in and he goes, Grandpapa, is it true that you are the greatest man in the world? And Churchill said, yes, I am. Now bugger off. And <laughs> <laughs> give me a whiskey. <laughs> give me whiskey. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's hysterical bugger off. I haven't heard that for a while. That's cool. <laughs> so Marilyn Monroe ends up being like a Rosie the Riveter or is it the Rosie the Riveter? Oh, like no, the, the, the Rosie the Riveter was a woman who uh, was on Long Island and then she became a big fan of PBS. So when you watch PBS shows like Nature and things like that, you'll see courtesy of the Rosalind P. Walter Foundation. 
But, right. but one of my favorite stories is about uh, a, an 18-year-old uh, uh, wife whose husband is overseas, and she's working at a drone factory. And I didn't even know there were drones in World War II before. Doing I didn't World. either, and yeah. Ronald Reagan is the head of domestic propaganda, and he sends a photographer for Yank magazine to take pictures of beautiful women on the assembly lines. And this guy meets this woman in California at the drone factory, and he just becomes infatuated with her. And he takes two weeks off and takes pictures for her so she can put together a modeling portfolio. She does. She's in 33 magazine covers, and she moves uh, out to 20th Century Fox and changes her name to Marilyn Monroe. So Marilyn Monroe is discovered on the assembly lines of World War II. Wow, wow. And even that they called it propaganda at that time, like that's funny. That's, you know, that that role for for Reagan, you know, we were just talking about him doing that, too. But propaganda, you know, that that word to be used is it's interesting. Um, and then there's, of course, Julia Childs was pretty good as a as a woman in regards to World War Two. She was a spy. Yes. Yeah, she was in the OSS and, and also the CIA. Yes. It's a fantastic story, isn't it? And then she moved on who, to the other CIA. <laughs> She but, did but see, too. that's the person, that's the kind of, Julia Child is just the kind of person who you want as a spy, because who would ever imagine, right? Right, I know, I know. She reminds me of Hyacinth Bouquet from Keeping Up Appearances. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. They kind of remind me right. of that. But but doing your research, are you traveling out and doing a lot of museums? Do you go to the actual places or are you reading a lot of, because now we have so many documents we can get online versus microfish, right, in the deep, dark caverns of, of libraries. But um, how do you put all of this together? With well, I mean, you must case, have like the chart of the World War II going on right. on your computer. In, in, in this particular case, a huge percentage of the material is either at the FDR library in upstate New York in Hyde Park, or is at the National Archives, which is in Maryland. So, and a lot of them are now online. So I was able to do this. I had to do, you know, three out of the six years it took to do this book, three of them were during the pandemic. So I had mm. to learn how to do everything remotely. I couldn't go anywhere. And mm. it was an amazing thing to do. In fact, I was violently sick during part of it. I was sort of oh. falling in and out of coma. And the part of the book that I oh. wrote during that period was very interesting. <laughs> I bet. I was like, okay, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, wow. Wow. So, but I mean, it's it's trying to put a, put their personalities in there. That's, I think, the importance like when you say an historian is to put you know people like full frontal yes. this is who they were there are personalities and I wish books like yours were more in schools you know because so the textbooks I never I don't think they I, maybe it's just when I was a kid really gave you it's like here's the date of this happened on this date remember this date but you never understood the people behind the wars and who made it happen and how. So as a kid, were you sparked by history when you were in school or did it come later? No, it really didn't come until I was an adult. I, mm. I, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't pick history until I was an adult and saw people like um, Beschloss and, uh, uh, and other historians and how they were working and what they were doing. And that's mm. when I became interested in it. And also, uh, I really love the idea of bringing back unsung heroes. I really love finding people that no one knows about, you know. Mm. So I did a book about going to the moon. And of course, a lot of that's uh, Neil Armstrong, but a lot of it is also the guy who figures out that to bring people safely back into the Earth's atmosphere, you've got to do a spaceship that has a fat butt. 
because the butt's going to come down <laughs> and slow down the speed of the aircraft. And that he knew about this fat butt idea is the whole reason we could send somebody to the moon. So I love bringing back people. And, and in this book, it's um, a whole group of people who are economists and salesmen and uh, a, a, a guy from General Motors named Bill Knudsen and a guy from Sears named Donald Nelson, no relation. But it's these people who were so important to uh, uh, the success story of this book and to bring them back so that people don't forget them is such a wonderful thing to do. So oh, I really love that. Oh, I do too, because it's knowing the people, because it's gossip, really, you know? Yes. It, it, and when you think about the, the business side of like World War II and getting the business people, people had to sell each other on stuff, didn't they? I mean, yes. even to get an airplane manufactured salespeople were invaluable, you know, during all Absolutely. of this. Absolutely. There, there was a real incredible one in this book named Jean Monnet, who is a Frenchman who was in charge of buying things from America for the French government. And then he loses his country to the Nazis. So he goes and does the same thing for the English. And he goes, you know, if American industrial power goes on at full force, we're going to win this war. And he's so annoyed Winston Churchill that Churchill sent him to America, where he developed such a following that he really inspired the administration into the arts of democracy. But now we don't know him at all for that. We know him as being one of the people who founded the European Union. So this entire story of his was lost, and I'm bringing it back. So Oh, I love I, that, I love because that gives a ground story and, and the footwork he did to get to his position, you know, right. because... Salespeople know more gossip than most people because you travel and, and they know about human beings. Yeah. Oh, yeah, psychology. But it's like yeah. if you're a salesperson, a lot of times they like if you go to a restaurant, they're going in the back door and when the restaurants close, they know they you know what I mean? They they know stuff. And yeah, I, I wonder right. about how many salespeople actually write because they should. <laughs> you know we want the scandal and the gossip but they do know what's happening and so when you think about that with him and here's all these different places you see benjamin franklin i think was one of those i think he was a good salesperson as well yeah no kidding yeah no absolutely he was a real great businessman ben franklin yeah i mean one of the things that i so loved about doing this also is that nowadays uh, everyone who's interested in this history talks about Eleanor Roosevelt and whether or not she was a lesbian with this girlfriend. Oh, and right. Letters they wrote back and forth. And what does it tell us? Well, when Eleanor Roosevelt was alive, she had a romantic scandal with her bodyguard named Earl Miller uh, to such an extent that when Earl Miller's wife asked him for a divorce, she named Eleanor as the other woman. And both of them kept saying that, oh, no, it was nothing like that. But the letters they wrote back and forth to each other ended up going into this divorce trial and vanished. And as, I, as far as I know, oh. they've been completely destroyed. So, so there she was. <laughs> you look at Eleanor Roosevelt, you never would imagine that we would be thinking of her boyfriends and girlfriends and wondering what was going on now. But we are. <laughs> well, there we have Benjamin Franklin doing the same thing, talking about him being oh, yeah. gay. And I brought it up on a show with a history writer and he got really mad at me and told me I didn't know anything I was talking about. And I was like, but I read it in this book that it was like this Bible of Benjamin Franklin. And I wish I could remember the author's name. And he was talking about there's speculation over it. And and who cares? Like to me, you know, be what you want to be. But um, why people would get upset about it, I don't know. Like, you know, Marie Antoinette was happy, too you know, right, until, exactly. until she lost <laughs> her head. But, <laughs> but I think that's, that's who people are. And, 
you know, love and war go hand in hand, you know, and pride yes. and, and all of that. So you're finding all kinds of juicy stuff writing this book. Right. Yeah. And, and also, it really helps the more you see someone as a real human being, instead of this icon, or instead of this hero, or the more, the more you can uh, feel yourself part of their story, and the more you can see yourself as being also having good and bad qualities like they do, instead of feeling above or below people. So Would I you like that. to see Vias for Victory come out as like a documentary, like a PBS, like, a you know, we've got the Ken Burns and all of that. But would you like to see your 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 book come out into film fashion? Oh, I'd rather it be a, a really uh, wild Netflix show. I'd like it to be like the, uh, the <laughs> Netflix show with the Nazis in Japan take a man in the high castle, the one where the, the Nazis <laughs> are on the East Coast and the Japanese are on the West Coast and the Americans are trying to fight against them. I wish they would do that. I, oh, I yeah, that would be fun. fun. Right. Oh, my I wish, gosh. Uh, I wish Shonda Rhimes would do this book as a series. <laughs> oh, my God, that would be a who? Who would you have Eleanor Roosevelt be? And, and a who do you want to play? A, a, a hot babe. A hottie, just like Marilyn Monroe, right? So yeah, we yeah, could yeah. swap. Yeah, yeah. Eleanor, Eleanor Roosevelt was obviously had a, had an attractive quality we don't see now. I think it's that, power. I think she had a power. I think she was a strong woman. And sometimes people are now somebody got kicked off a network for saying something like that. I can't kick myself off. But anyway, but, <laughs> but she had a power. She had a power about her an authority that I think, and I think she just simply didn't care what, I think she was very right. much a free, free spirit, but with um, yes. strong, strong, a strong backbone. You know what I mean? So, if, so I think George Clooney should play FDR and Charlize Theron should play Eleanor Roosevelt. Wouldn't that be fun? Now there's a show. I'm in. I am so that would be because Charlie Saran is like one of the best actors out there. I think, She's yeah, incredible, incredible. Oh my, right. and Churchill, who's going to be Churchill? Oh, Churchill, uh, Churchill has to be some really fun. Uh, it, it has to be someone with an incredible voice. So you know, maybe someone from Star Wars. Oh my God, I wish. Oh my gosh, you know, we can't. James Earl Jones is church. I know, I know, right? That's what <laughs> I was thinking. Or Morgan Freeman. No, Morgan's too nice. I think James, James Earl Jones. Could you? And then you'd make Winston Churchill black, and that would really freak everybody out. But I think it'd it be would fantastic. be fantastic. I love fantastic. it. I love it. Yeah. I love. Yeah. Now, did you did you touch on any history in regards to the Tuskegee Airmen in in World no, War Two? Yeah, mm -hmm. no, not this book. I wrote about them in a book called The First Heroes, which is about the origins of the Air Force in World War II. And it's about, okay. uh, it, it's about an event called the Doolittle Raid, where in April, uh, FDR had a group of uh, American airmen attack the Japanese home island. And it turned the war around because it made Americans think they might win because all of 1942 had previously been a disaster. So it had this. So so it inspired things like the Tuskegee Airmen. Oh, because what was interesting to me about that is when you talk about here's all these little scandals going on, like Eleanor Roosevelt. And, you know, I, I feel like during World War II, when there's such intensity of things happening, that is when naughty things happen because you can go, well, there's a war. So. Let's go see the neighbor. And and, yeah. and you know what I mean? So there's that kind of thing too. So like the Tuskegee Airmen, you know, go over to France, go to other countries where they were, you know, more accepted than they were in their own country. Yes. And 
then they come home they're like well, you know what do you mean I, they, they like me over here so you know there were relationships built over there and so when yeah. they came home it was it it was just a, a rude awakening you know yeah so one of the incredible quotes i have in this book is about a um black private goes to eat at a wichita kansas uh, uh, lunch counter and they turn him away because it's whites only but he looks in there and they've got Nazi prisoner of wars eating at this lunch counter that they won't let black people eat at so wow. that, that was quite an incredible story and and uh, the other thing is that you know the the head of the navy admiral king vanished from his office for two or three hours every afternoon and no one knew where he went and we still don't know where he went and then a female delinquency in World War II increased 25%. And that meant everything from breaking curfew to murder. So you're right. War, <laughs> war gives people a chance to really let their freak flag fly, I guess. I, I think it's just because you go, well, all this is happening. We could die tomorrow, so let's do it. <laughs> You've got like, it. That's exactly you know? how it works. You've got yeah. that right. Yeah, It is. It is. So um, one thing before you go, I wanted to touch on here. You know, FDR gets everybody communicating and doing, and and I think you know they say behind every great man is a great woman. I think Eleanor Roosevelt, she had her hand in in a lot, right? Too with yeah. with strategy, strategy, logistics. I'm gonna think about this now. I like that. Um, communication wasn't like okay. So can you touch on how he managed to really communicate overseas and with everybody? Um, to get, because again, you couldn't, it wasn't, you can't be slow. You need to be as fast as you can to turn things around. What was the communication system like for folks that, that are just now starting to understand and, and really research World War II of how things got done that way? Well, it was, he, he had two things that were really unique to FDR. Because he was paralyzed, he had mm -hmm. a spy network set up to go around and tell him what was really going on. And and we and some of them were people like Edward R. Murrow, the radio commentator from London. And but the lead spy was Eleanor. And she traveled all over the world and reported back to her husband what was really going on. And that's how he made his policy. And he would tell people, you know, my missus really gets around. So he was very she does. proud of her. Yes. And she, but he he this whole talk about he had this affair and she had this affair. It really didn't matter. Their relationship was very powerful and they really loved each other and they really worked incredibly well together. Mm. Yeah. And, but the other thing he did was he was the biggest star of radio. And at that time, radio was like the internet is now. It was the media that everyone mm. was captivated by. People had listened to the radio all the time and he was radio's biggest star. And he uh, pioneered the idea that he would have an intimate uh, voice in, on your radio. So you would really feel like he you were sitting with the president talking to him. And mm. people felt such a connection to him that when he died uh, and a man was seen sobbing on the street, somebody came up to him and said, oh, did you know Franklin Roosevelt? And he said, no, I didn't, but he knew me. And that's wow. how the powerful effect he had on the radio and communicating to people. And he was listened to all over the world. And immediately after he was on the radio, uh, Hitler had something to say about it and Churchill had something to say about it. So he really commanded the world through the radio. It's amazing. You know, I had a step-grandfather who uh, is from Guernsey in the Channel Islands. And we went over to meet him and um, I see my grandmother. This was years ago. And he says, you know, when I was in the occupation, and he, 
he was in the occupation and they did they occupied their island and we went to the um the actual hospital which was underground and still had the beds in there and mold and water right. trickling down the walls it was a creepy setup um he had his radio he called it the russian radio and then later we all lived in mexico together and at four in the morning he would turn that russian radio on and drive us bonkers trying to <laughs> to get there but that radio he said they took it away took his batteries away he made his own battery power to get that radio wow. going so that wow. they could understand what was going on because they were being they had to do things for for the germans but he had to do things and they wanted to know like out because they weren't being told what was really going on so the radio mm -hmm. was absolutely everything but one day we decided we're disabling this radio because he's waking the whole neighborhood up at four in the morning <laughs> with static and he's never going to do it so we had this crazy idea of spraying pam on the wires oh. so we thought the ants would come from the moisture and eat oh, the wires right. And yeah. the next morning at four in the morning, he turned it on and the darn thing went so loud, the whole neighborhood could hear it with an actual <laughs> voice this time. No static, but then we got woken up and it worked. So we fixed his Russian radio. How nice. Uh, <laughs> See, never play a prank on someone who's been occupied in the right. But anyway, yes. yo, that's the, the radio was really huge. It, it really, really was. But um, I really appreciate you joining us and writing what you write, uh, all of the World War II history and, and your other books. Everyone, again, the book is V is for Victory, Franklin Roosevelt's American Revolution and the Triumph of World War II out through Scribner came out May 23rd, 2023. So check that out. And you can go to craignelson.us to learn more about Craig. And of course, keep up with us at Big Blend radio.com thank you so much craig it's been so much fun thanks for keeping history fun it's fantastic thank you so much for having me